everybody. Welcome back. We are the Lib Slayers, Tony and Clem. Our mission, as always, is to bring global awareness to the general public while exposing the legacy media and its demonic globalist overlords. How are you doing today, Clem? I am fantastic, Tony. How are you doing? Excellent. On one of our previous shows, uh, speaking on the Bill of Rights and how the Bill of Rights is the key the founders left us uh, for standing up against tyranny, we like to bring in uh, one of our guest historians is Pat. Pat was uh, intrigued by our Bill of Rights story, and as we here at Lip Slayers look to ourselves as being the new Roman Forum, all opinions are welcome. Uh, so Pat wanted to come in today and challenge and some of our points that we made on that show and also add to. So how are you doing today, Pat? I'm doing all right. How are you, Tony? Excellent. So Clem, Pat, uh, take it away. All right. Well, um, you know, I listened to the actual podcast uh, and a few things I want to take into consideration is that, um, I mean, you guys covered almost uh, the main points, everything that's like should be covered pretty much. But I thought on some level it's actually important to maybe point to just specific stuff. So there was one point where, uh, Clem, you mentioned that the average dude walking down the street in 1820 America, he well understood that he possessed the right to bear and keep arms. And I would say that I'm unsure a little bit how much the average person actually knew, at least philosophically. But I think to some degree it was built into the culture. You know, you know, the, you gotta, you know Pat, I, I, I think I came up with that. I mean, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around 9 million people were in what was called the United States of America at the time, which is right. not a huge amount of people. And they just came out of the revolution, and they just, you know, one of the things, obviously, there was a trigger of the revolution was the attempt of the king to take arms. And, I, you know, word's going to spread pretty fast, right, through a, a population of 9 million. And yeah, it was by horseback and people walking from town to town. But, you know, I can, I can tell you that, for instance, when I was in Iraq, uh, I was there during uh, 2003 and then again in 2006. And I'm here to tell you, you know, they didn't have very much of an infrastructure communication-wise. But when something hit the street, it spread like wildfire, especially when it came to stuff that people are entitled to or had a right to. So that's kind of the, where I was coming from on that. Um, okay. Not necessarily that I've gone back and researched through you know, pages of stuff that help me understand that, yeah, the average dude walking down the street knew that, but it just seems intuitive to me that that close after the revolution, that close after the Bill of Rights, I would think that those people being that close to that activity and everything that happened and how their lives probably changed significantly, although for a lot of people probably didn't change at all. I mean, when did actually Thomas Jefferson and, you know, John Adams die? Does anyone know actually their their death, what year it was? Uh, 1826 uh, um, on the so, 50th I mean, anniversary had, of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, I mean, you still had founding fathers alive at that time. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, probably people, I would say more than today had a better knowledge of what their rights were. Right. I, I didn't want to state that the average person didn't know it, but to understand, because you guys are talking about natural rights quite a bit. Right. Um, and that is... How would I put it? The Founding Fathers knew a lot of uh, – I wouldn't – how would I put this? The American Revolution is not extremely, extremely radical. It's more of a, a revolution of tried and true ideas in which they took um, ideas from different historical periods and from different writers going back to uh, the Republic of Rome, 
going back to guys um, like the Baron de Montesquieu, you know, in the mid 1700s, writing um, the spirit of the laws, different Enlightenment writings. And I think this is what I think the average person wouldn't quite understand. And but sometimes um, it, it's basically the philosophical backing they probably wouldn't have understood, but it was built into the culture well enough that it was something that they they thought to be right and and true, even if they didn't quite understand the writings of you know the Second Treaties on Government by John Locke, you know, or um, and how less it, prone do you would you imagine then that? 350 plus million people that population this far disconnected from the revolution are really as acquainted with those uh, philosophies and those ideas uh, that you just mentioned you know how less oh. are how less are people today connected to all that than even maybe even a smaller percentage yeah it's 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 you know what I'll say is back if you if you're going back to as you mentioned 1820 for example or just the 1700s even if they didn't understand John Locke, there was a lot of crossover between those type of philosophies like John Locke and natural rights and the sort of uh, reformed Protestant culture. And so a lot of people had a lot of the same ideas, but it came more from their religious background almost. Because actually a lot of the Protestant ideas back up a lot of these ideas from English philosophy. Because you got to think, someone like John Locke was actually, well, we don't really know too deeply into his religious uh, feelings, other than you know his writings on tolerance of religion. But you have to imagine, you know, all the higher ups in England in the late 1600s when John Locke was writing would have been um, of some sort of Protestant background, even if they weren't of the reformed, you know, ultra conservative version uh, that you see in New England, like the Pilgrims there still would have been that, that background that had to do with the decentralization of not just religion, but politics. It's a, kind of a tough thing to explain. I would actually recommend a book that talks a lot about it. It's on uh, Roger Sherman. He's uh, actually one of the founding fathers from Connecticut, uh, and he is responsible for, our, our, um, for the, what's called the Connecticut Compromise, where he basically talks uh, – basically come up with the idea that the Senate will have two members while the House is based on the population. But he was deeply religious and was pretty representative of, of how Protestant thinkers in this country, um, how they thought. And it was this idea that the religion is decentralized and so should be their government. And so that had to do a lot with individual self-sufficiency, uh, that Protestant work ethic you always hear about. And so they may not have known John Locke. They, you know, the people may not have understood the Enlightenment writings, but they understood their religious and historical background. And now we've thrown a lot of that out the window. We've thrown, you know, obviously from the 1800s onwards, we've, you know, the role of religion has been reduced more and more. Whether that's considered a good or bad thing overall, I'm not going to make a point on that, but it's not just religion. It's just our history, we're, we're further and further removed. And um, I know... Would it be fair uh, to say from the value systems that really assisted in the ushering in of that kind of liberty and prosperity? Yeah, the values have to be there. And, and to be honest, it took me personally just a long time in um, studying politics to figure that out, that sometimes the culture is more important than the actual political change. The, the culture, if that changes, it's 
that can make or break a, a society. And I think that is what is going downhill. It's kind of like, Tony, you, you know a lot of history on the Roman Republic. You know, you, do you know the story of uh, Cincinnatus in early Republican history? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Cincinnatus, you know, Cincinnatus is actually, there's a lot of debate on the, when you start to go far back deep into the deep beginnings of the Republic and much into, you know, when the kings actually ruled Rome, that even the Romans had lost a lot of knowledge of their own history after Rome was sacked the first time in like 312 BC or something. It might even been earlier than that. But Cincinnatus was basically a George Washington figure, whereas he embodied everything that the Roman citizen was supposed to be. He was the citizen soldier farmer. He, and his whole idea was that, you know, his whole honor that he was did, he was giving, he was elected to dictator because what a lot of people don't understand is that the title of dictator was an actual political position that the Roman Senate would give to somebody in a time of great crisis. And it was a, it was an office that was held for six months. And I think it was three separate times Cincinnatus was given the title of dictatorship, which after completing his mission, relinquished his title and then went back to his farm. Sounds a lot like so he was, Washington. Yeah, and Washington that's what they always basically call does it twice himself. Yeah, but it's, you see right there in that story with Cincinnatus, there's a few different values here. One is that you didn't take over and try to become king because they had that background with the kingdom and they overthrew the last, you know, the last Roman king in 509 BC. So you had this idea that, you know, republic was good, king was bad, and one person ruling was, was extremely bad for any long period of time. But you also had the idea of this farmer. And that was sort of, it kind of goes back to this like austere sort of, um, you know, you live a simple life, simple but good, simple but moral. It, that's actually, I would actually compare that to a lot of Protestant values in the beginning of this country. You know, that's basically how the pilgrims lived. It's how the Amish still live. So what I would say is that the reason if you look at the Roman laws as the Roman Republic fell, it's not that the laws necessarily changed about dictatorship. It's that the culture changed where precedent by precedent occurred, where it became a little easier to break the rules and a little easier. And it was the culture that actually, at least this is my, my thesis, if you want to call it that, is that the, the Republic fell because the culture changed not necessarily because of the laws in and of themselves. I mean, I I agree 100%. I mean, it started with basically the Gracchi, the Gracchi brothers initiating violence into political discourse. Because, I mean, the thing about, you know, especially the Roman Republic, there was a very strict rules for how you could obtain political offices. It had to be done. It was actually called the cursus honorum. and. There was age limits and all these kind of things to prevent people from young men from attaining large amounts of power. They wanted always the heads of the state to be, you know, elder gentlemen established. And then if they got it, when they attained that rank, they usually died not too long after, you know. But when they actually brought in, you know, the Gracchi started to disobey term limits, which is what the one brother did, um, and then instituted violence to block their political opponents. That set the precedent down the line for men like, or or even like the cult of personality that had been established by, say, a Scipio Africanus, where this 
a flamboyant, charismatic leader would start to attract the loyalty of the soldiers over the Senate, you know, over the Senate and the country. I mean, that's what ended up devolving in during this, you know, initial part of Caesar's civil war, you know, in the first triumvirate between Crassus Pompey and, and, and Julius Caesar was you basically had Rome divided up under three of the most powerful mafia bosses. I mean, the Senate had been regulated to a rubber stamp by then and it continued after the fall of Caesar, after the civil wars and the establishment of Octavian, who would become Augustus under, you know, but the difference was, I see where we're at right now. We were teetering on the spot kind of today, but at, we're kind of almost at that point. The Republic is, ha- is hanging by a thread in this country. And we are either going to go into maintaining what we had before, or we go into the, this kind of quasi dictatorship with the semblances of democracy because that's what the reign of augustus established early on was why he didn't call himself emperor i mean that title was not used by the actual emperor i mean his the title the emperor would be called would be the princep the first citizen and what it was was the first citizen the first among equals augustus went to great length to maintain the illusion of the republic still existing under his complete autocracy yeah, and well, it was I, I what it was. That at this point in the conversation, it drives home to me the importance more than ever of us fully receiving the gift that was the Bill of Rights that was carved out by our founders and understanding when those are getting trampled, then you know the time is near. Right, and uh, that that starts with what, um, what Tony was saying is uh, I think you you see it when you start to see violence as a means of political change. And I don't mean as full-scale revolution because that's not what the Gracchi brothers were doing. Um, and I just want to credit, it was 410 B.C. when the first sack of Rome was. Just wanted to throw it out there because I was a little off. Forte. Uh, go on, please. Always good to get the facts right. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, I think that once, the, once you start to see violence in exchange for political change, this is where you start to see the real crack and fall. And I don't, like I said, I don't mean a full-scale revolution, you know, um, where there's been what you call in the Declaration of Independence, you know, a long train of abuses. I mean, when someone just wants to get a law passed and they use violence for that end, you know, even if you think of guys like, you know, MLK, you know, they use nonviolence uh, for it. So I wouldn't even count that into the category, but I'm talking about how I put it. Assassination? Yeah, that type of thing. Didn't want to get too deep into that, but... Well, thankfully, we, we don't... We haven't had much of that, although... Uh, without going down that rabbit hole, it's hard to say how much stuff is actually going on. I mean, clearly, many of our politicians today are thoroughly compromised. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I think even sometimes regarding you know the secrets of the Supreme Court and the entire Congress, whoever's in charge of that, pretty much wields the power of violence. Right, and that's why I think you sometimes see it even on the lower um, levels, down to down to the police, even. Sure. You know, I've seen. Uh, an increase in civil asset forfeiture use ever since uh, what made the late 80s, early 90s, where the police can actually um, simply charge your property with a crime in order to take it if they think that your property was involved in a in a crime itself. They don't even have to charge you or anyone else with the crime. They simply charge the property. Yeah, and by the way, they can take $10,000 of your property and you have to spend $50,000 to get it back. In fact, by the way, that is a lot of what the Fourth Amendment is actually about. 
and that's what I was kind of hoping that I wanted to talk about, something of that nature, uh, because we oftentimes it, act we oftentimes act like um, the things that happened in the past are not the same things that are happening now. When in some cases that's not true at all. So in some cases, it's almost the exact same thing. So for example, and I may have some of the details wrong, so you know I may have to correct myself at a later point, but. In the years leading up to the American Revolution, John Hancock, who actually inherited a uh, shipping business from, I believe, his uncle, he was um, basically the, the Redcoats thought that he was smuggling in goods, probably primarily tea, as the uh, colonists were forced to use the tea of the um, East Indian Tea Company. So right there you have basically a government monopoly uh, you know, that was established and these merchants like John Hancock are saying, well, why do we have to use this one company? You know, why can't we have competition? And so basically the Redcoats uh, at one point in the middle of this, this back and forth, they suspect John Hancock of kidnapping one of the Redcoats. And they seize his ship called the Liberty, which I find a little ironic that that was the ship taken. Um, but they seize his ship and they put him on trial and find that he was actually innocent. Um, despite being innocent, they held on to his ship. He never got it back. So they were able to just basically seize his property. So you're saying and the king ultimately took John Hancock's liberty. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it literally took the liberty. <laughs> um, could explain the lar- why his uh, signature was the largest. He had a beef. He had some beef with the king. Oh, he definitely did. He wanted the king to see that that right and say, "Remember me." Yeah. If if the king was even paying attention, but you have a situation here where a law enforcement, where law enforcement, you know, it's the redcoats in this example, can simply take property despite someone not being guilty of a crime, and that's what we see today. In fact, it's even worse because at least in John Hancock's case, they had to actually try to charge him with a crime. He came out innocent, but they held his ship anyway here they don't even have to try to charge you they just charge the ship and they don't even have to really prove that the ship was part of a crime no you actually have to go out and prove that the ten thousand dollars cash money that you had on your pocket walking across the street from your donut shop to the bank was a perfectly innocent transaction and you have to prove your innocence right which is a complete violation of the bill of rights right there you're you're destroying destroying innocence, um, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And touching so, off on the conversation that we just had, you know, it seems to me that, that this is dem- demonstrative of an erosion of the culture because culturally I think we've been, for whatever reason, managed to the point where apparently we're accepting this, whereas maybe a previous culture would have not would not have accepted this in concept. It's like, hold on a second, wait you know, no, I don't have to prove my innocence. You have to prove I'm guilty. Right. And I, I've, I've thought about that before. I, I think what's the difference between our culture, you know, our, uh, yeah, our culture and a previous generation's culture, you know, tried to think about that quite a bit. And one of the things that hits me just as a theory, you take it for what it is. Again, when you go back to, let's say 1770s, New England, you're talking about a society which, um, again, has that sort of Protestant, austere sort of culture that, you know, it, there's no real focus on material things. You know, talking with a, a friend of mine, you know, he, he has said, 
when talking about government abuses, that the people will do nothing as long as they have their uh, food, water, electricity, and their internet. And I think... Well, as the Romans used to say, bread and circuses, and I've dubbed today food stamps and football. Yeah, something like that. I think that's the big difference, is that that austere culture, whether of the, the Protestants in New England in the 1700s, or whether it's the early Romans who saw Cincinnati as, as like the ideal of what they wanted to be, that sort of, you know, minimalist farmer, you know, not worried about material goods, just trying to live a simple life. Do when his that, duty. Yeah, yeah do his duty. Home. Right. And just that, when that is gone and all you're focusing on is um, what today people would call consumerism, I think that is part of the thing that, that well, I don't makes think our culture different theory. than past. I, I, I don't think it's a theory at all. I think it's in practice, and I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think what we're seeing is the replacing um, of duty, the replacing of civic duty, the, re- the replacement of personal responsibility with complacency and entertainment. And, and no doubt about it that there is, you know, there are those who have understood this. You look at Bernays, you look at the beginnings of television and propaganda, and it's for many years a lot of people had the idea that these systems were going to be used, not just to market goods, but to, you know, breed complacency. Right. There's actually something I would have any of the listeners look up, and you can quickly just look this up on on Google or or Bing or any one of those, something called the Titler cycle of history. And it's this idea, yeah, okay, we're, we're progressing technologically, but in terms of the culture of different generations, it's actually very cyclical according to uh, Titler. And in, let me just read this off and see if it actually sounds something close to like what we're going through. So what you have, uh, try to figure out, it's a circle where to actually start off. Let's say you have liberty, right? After something like a revolution. So we can say uh, either right after 509 BC when the Romans overthrow their last king, or it can be um, right after the American Revolution, perhaps. Um, so you have liberty, right? And it's success and prosperity. So from that brings abundance of material things. As that starts to happen, you get selfishness. You get private interest groups. And then through that abundance and the selfishness, you get complacency, sort of a, maybe a sense of entitlement that goes into apathy. Then next, dependence. And then from there, full-on bondage. From there, though, through the bondage, people actually, uh, without freedom, will develop a spiritual faith. You can maybe think of, um, like, the Jews during, uh, you know, their their enslavement in Egypt. So they develop a spiritual faith. From that spiritual faith, they will develop the courage. That courage will eventually bring a fight for freedom to lead back to liberty. And then liberty, again, will come to abundance, and then material good selfishness. (laughs) Very relevant, and, and I totally get that, but I, I tend to think that there's probably enough people in America today uh, that are still participants in rugged individualism, that as we see the apathy in the coastal regions and the high population centers grow towards things like the Second Amendment, you know, across the breadbasket and the, the red states, I think you see a lot of discontent and a lot of anger building, you know, towards this this idea that a bunch of you know teenagers can come out and say, well, it's bad that we have guns, so we just need to get rid of them. 
Uh, I don't and, think that that's well, going to happen. So it's kind of like what, what, yeah, what Pat was saying, like in a very eloquent manner and like a very story, but it's, it comes down to kind of that old, that old saying that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. Yep. Exactly. Even though I still um, think that there's probably a lot of hard men in our country. That's <laughs> kind of what I'm saying. I think we've, we're a long oh. way. I think we're closer to losing our, our rights, not through necessarily mass complacency, but enough complacency. Well, I mean, we are one of the only countries in the world that literally still, whatever people want to believe or not, America is a warrior culture. I mean, we are, we have basically fought a war every 10, 15 years since we were founded. I mean, there's so many wars we fought and that people have no idea we were even involved in. And so we, America is definitely a warrior culture. And it's hard to break those cultures. I mean, it literally took the Romans, it was centuries before they kind of fully moved away from their martial heritage. And when they did, it ended up, you know, being the eventual, one of the reasons leading to the eventual collapse of the West was it wasn't Italians fighting anymore. You know, they, the, the, the people that had been running it w- were the ones getting fat off the good times. And as soon as the ones fighting don't want to fight no more for you, then it's over, you know. You know, that actually um, kind of maybe maybe this is a side point, but it actually kind of makes me think of stereotypically what I've seen where a lot of Americans um, often uh, maybe fit that bill of what Clem is talking about, of, you know, being dependent, I guess, or not even just dependence on, I know a lot of people might think of the government, but dependence perhaps on a consumerist culture. Um, And you might want to think of like, you know, the center of Rome, right? Just the actual city itself. Whereas when you look at the countryside, you may actually see a different culture. Or even when you see people who, uh, for example, immigrants who come to the country, um, my experience has been uh, oftentimes that new immigrant families to this country are often some of the hardest working people. A lot more thrifty. Um, a lot less right. wasteful. Right, exactly. They haven't really fallen into a consumerist culture, which also gives them that sort of what you know, might want to call Protestant work ethic, even if they're not Protestant. It's just this idea that they're living more of an austere lifestyle, and that has made them tougher. Uh, and by the way, uh, Tony, that idea of the, we call it hard times, creating tough men, tough men create good times, and that whole cycle. Even Julius Caesar actually recognized something of that. If you uh, read his commentary on the Gallic Wars, um, he talks about like these different levels of Gauls, um, you know, the, the, the Celts, basically. And he said the ones that are closer to Roman society that have already assimilated are often some of the, the, the least fierce. But as you get further and further away from that Roman culture, those are actually the ones that the Romans had a tougher time fighting. Well, let me ask uh, both abso- you guys. Absolutely. Let me ask 100%. both you guys how much of that had to do with the uh, the idea of the forbidding, you know, generals from bringing their armies into Rome because they were absolutely they knew there was no way they could fight these guys. Because you know the whole you know it's like say like the way during the Caesar's time armies were only delegated to people that had just been consul. So you would get a pro what would be called a proconsular appointment after your you know year in office as council and this would be basically the reward the general got for uh 
you know, or the reward the politician got for a year in service, they would have got to let him go off to a province and basically suck the place dry and become wealthy off it. But it's just like you're saying how the ones closer to Rome were the ones more adapt or more aligned to make a deal with the Romans as far as the ones more north you went, and especially the Germans. I mean, you know, the Germans were so un-Romanized. And the, for whatever reason, the Romans could never crack that nut of figuring out how to get these people to enjoy some of the luxuries of life. Because if you, you know, another thing that's in the Balio Gallico, the Gallic War commentaries, was Caesar discussing how the German people were. And he literally talked about, he goes, these people, you know, they basically never slept with a roof over their head. They always were sleeping outside. They wore the minimalist of clothes, even in the coldest weather. They, you know... They would actually refrain from sex until they were like 21 years old. I mean, yeah, I mean, this was, I mean, people think, oh, you know, but you're talking about a time where you were living to 30 or 35, 40 years old. I mean, half your life, and it was even the same with the women, half their life of being able to produce children was locked up in this whole cultural thing. I mean, they were just a much hardier, fight spirited people that didn't want to give up what they, you know, loved, even if it meant luxury. You know, that's why they could never, they literally could never conquer these people. Whereas the Gauls, like I said, were almost, they were very Roman in their manner anyways. You know, as much as the ones that would fight harder, you still had the ones, they had the hierarchy similar to Rome. So it was like, they were much more uh, willing to assimilate than uh, like the Germans were. So it's, uh, it's the same thing. Crazy. Right, and that's I would say I would actually make a real parallel here is that you know the Romans basically Julius Caesar says they didn't win the Romans didn't win against the Gauls because the Romans were more fierce they they won because they were more disciplined they uh, were more technologically advanced uh, were basically half soldier half construction engineer um, absolutely they used more of their brain when it came to fighting the Gauls where the Gauls were tougher even according to Julius Caesar. So it's kind of like, you know, we now today, and maybe you guys can comment on this much better than I can, but we now have sort of a, um, a military where now you can actually have people in, uh, maybe I'm wrong, I thought there was like a base in Oklahoma or somewhere out in the Midwest where you can fly drones to the Middle East and oh, yeah, basically kill Vegas. a man from half. They've got to operate drones out of Las Vegas. And, I, and I'll tell you what you're saying there. What I can comment on is, like, today the, the, the field to join the military is, is a highly competitive, highly selective field. It's anything but a welfare program. You are going to compete. And it, whether, you, whether you choose the path of a non-commissioned officer or a commissioned officer, you are going to have to have multiple levels of education uh, to continue to get advanced. So, yeah, I mean, right. you have half soldier, half uh, construction engineer. You know, half soldier, half philosopher, half soldier, half you know thinker. Always, and and one of the things that we've learned through our history is that every and one of the things that really separates us from many other militaries around the planet is every soldier can do the job of the guy above him and two below. So that no matter who gets taken out in a fight, you're not standing around leaderless wondering what to do. Everybody's trained to be a leader from very low ranks. And I think if wow. you look at that, this is why the military. Why our military is still effective is, and and it's almost a set, almost a separate. It is, you know, basically a separate world, because we've been still involved in so many conflicts. There's never been such a long period of time where the Romans would face us all the time, where there'd be log bouts of peace, and you had huge sections of the army that literally had done nothing for thirty years, 
where then you had soldiers that were, you know, along the Rhine and the Danube that were always usually under some kind of, you know, opposition. But it's the same thing. The American soldier is an American. He's not from Egypt. He's not from, you know, you know, one of these other far-flung provinces. You know, the American soldier is an American. So it's, you know, that's where the Rome, they're basically the Rome folk because they stopped having Romans fight for them. You know, they would keep some in the hierarchy, but in the end, it, you know, there was a lot, the people running your empire were not from the mainland, you know. Basically, the last Italians in uniform at a, as a whole as a fighting unit were the Praetorians, and they would end up being completely disbanded in, their, in the idea that they'd be an Italian, because they was an Italian-born unit, you know, because you could actually recognize somebody in the Praetorians as maybe your cousin or something, where the legion... You didn't know if you were from Italy, you didn't know anybody in the Legion because they were from Pannonia. They were from Germ, you know, they were auxiliaries from all over the place. A lot of mercenaries. You know, it wasn't so much mercenary, but the auxiliaries were basically, you know, you had the Roman Legion, which was the Roman citizen. Now, at that, you know, it's basically the point of the Severan dynasty, Septimius Severus and his descendants. Uh, his, his son, Caracalla, would end up giving the citizenship, Roman citizenship to everybody within the borders of the empire. But you would use auxiliaries because a lot of times, like, um, you know, the, the Gaul or the Celts and everything like that, and these Germanic tribes that would have alliances, well, they would be, you know, conscripted in to provide cavalry, provide archers, whatever. So as many, if you had a Roman legion, you also had a Roman auxiliary attached to that Roman legion. You know, if you look at you know, Trajan's column, uh, the war column of his conquest of Dacia, if you look at a lot of the soldiers, you know, actually in the fighting scenes are not Roman legionaries. They're actually auxiliaries. And you can tell them by the, the uniform they're wearing, but it was like, it was that prowess. And after, basically, then you had the Praetorians thrown out and them reestablished with, you know, Septimius Severus's best soldiers it was all, you know, all the Italian faces were gone in the military. We haven't had that problem because it's still, we're still a martial society. And the fact that we have been fighting a war every, you know, decade to two decades, we've never had that long period of complacency that would let the army itself breed that same kind of decadence as you see the civilian population living off the fat of what that army is protecting and providing. Hmm. Well, let me let me bring this up as a uh, and I, I apologize. I feel like I've kind of uh, steered the conversation away from the Bill of Rights quite a bit. Um, well, I mean, this is all, really I mean, just stuff, like you were though. saying before, the founders were the red antiquity. I mean, h- half of what you know some of these you know the amendments were made for was just what we've been talking about—the period of the Rome fall of the Republic and on. <laughs> I mean, I mean Jefferson and Adams—they all knew antiquity through and through. So, right. Yeah. Although you also have to think that um, there's another history here, and we probably ignored it completely, and that's the history of um, well, basically English history, specifically uh, around the last 150 years before their time in the Revolution. You know, you can. It wasn't that uncommon to hear someone from, let's say, the 1700s, or you know, in the writings, talk about someone like Oliver Cromwell, who led, basically became a dictator in England during the late 1640s and what's called the English Civil War. And it's a lot of these events that actually lead to a lot of the Age of Enlightenment, at least the English Enlightenment uh, views. Like, for example, the Second Amendment is actually in the English Bill of Rights, 
uh, written in 1689. I mean, they don't call it the second. Uh, well, actually, I, I have to double check on it. I don't know um, if it's actually the second article or what, but it's in there where the English Bill of Rights actually gives um, uh, basically the right to defend oneself or to bear arms, although in their case, they only give it to Protestants exclu- excluding Catholics, unfortunately. But it's because of their history in, well, in mean, the 1600s. Well, we only gave free men excluding slaves. Right, which also gives you a good idea of how Catholics were thought of in England in the 1600s. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, if you look at 1600s English history, they went through two different revolutions in that same century. And the first one in the 1640s goes on for about 10 years. And it's really brutal. And then they have another one, which is compared to that, it's relatively bloodless, called the Glorious Revolution in 1688. And it's from from there that you have the writings of John Locke. John Locke actually was in the government at this time during the Glorious Revolution. So he actually writes his second treatise on government um, exactly 100, well, not down to the day, but down to the year, 100 years before the establishment of our current government under the Constitution. So the, it basically, you can see a lot of the same writings as you go through this. Um, you know, start with the English Bill of Rights in 1689, and then a lot of Enlightenment writings throughout the late 1600s and the 1700s, into even some of the state's Bill of Rights and their constitutions, such as the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which I believe came out the same year as the Declaration of Independence. And in there, they have a lot of the same writings that you see in the in our Bill of Rights. So you can actually see this, this transition of these ideas. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, talking about the idea of natural rights, right, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, he said that he was not writing some radical idea. He was just writing what most educated men knew to be true at the time. It was just an idea that was built into their culture going back to John Locke's writings in the late 1600s in England. And so they understood that, I mean, despite the fact that even to today, England has a monarchy, even though its power has been completely diminished for the most part, they were always, the English had its fair share of tyrants, and they were always hesitant about giving too much power. Not as jealously as the Romans in the Republic, but... The right to free speech. Oh yeah, I mean right now you're you're. Um, I just read today about uh, the mayor of London actually trying to ban knives, and so it's going down yeah. past the past the gun level down to down to knives. You know, I'm seeing little memes online like "Come and take them," and there's a picture of a butter knife there. <laughs> <laughs> Next, it'll be popsicle sticks, and after that, it will be really brutal words. I actually think this is a this is a great place to end this uh, episode, and uh, we will definitely be bringing Pat back for to continue this conversation uh, due to time constraints. We got to get ourselves going. Thank you again for uh, coming on, Pat. Excellent, excellent points, and definitely this is going to be a, a multi-part series. Getting into uh, you know we've gone through a huge portion of history of the Roman Republic. You know, beginning the episode with. Uh, how the Bill of Rights is the key for standing up against tyranny. Um, We have covered a lot of ground, and we will come back next time and finish this up. So uh, thanks again, Pat, for coming on, and Clem, as always. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 
And uh, like I said, if you like Lib Slayers, like us on Facebook, check us out on iTunes, subscribe, listen, tell your friends. Um, and I will end this with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Tib and men prefer the calm of despotism to the tempestuous sea of liberty. God bless you and God bless America.